Hello, I'm Nigel Cassidy and this is Markets Talk, back after our Easter break and with stonking 11 and 9% jumps for the S&P and FTSE in the first three months of the year, well, you might think it's time to sell in May and go away again. It does look like probably we're not going to get an earnings recession, they've sort of eyed maybe a 2% decline in EPS in the US maybe now looking at, at some growth there. So much better corporate earnings in the US. And those gains in the face of headwinds like the US-China trade war, but unlike Brexit, that might even go away. I would say that uh, although there are headwinds, the the real bad outcomes, the really nasty ones, what we like to call the tail risks, have receded putting some dates in the diary for Trump and Xi Jinping to meet. Yes, we're spoiling you this week. Blonde Money's Helen Thomas is with us. She's held numerous senior jobs with city firms and was an advisor to former Chancellor George Osborne. Together with the sage of Primrose Street, Neil Wilson, whose job description at markets.com seems to cover everything here except laughing at my jokes. <laughs> I laughed at that one. <laughs> that one's quite good. Okay, well, let's uh, talk UK a bit, uh, Europe, US, and then we can dive into the companies. Neil, just get us up to speed a bit since the last time we met. I guess the the US stock market's been going great guns. It's hit a series of record highs. So the S&P 500 uh, being the main the main one there. The Dow the Dow's not quite matched it, but the Dow's never a particularly good um, tracker being price weighted rather than market cap weighted. So we always tend to look at that S&P 500 as the real gauge. It's been doing very well. Brexit's gone quiet. That's I guess that's really the thing that, that struck me. It's, Theresa May's been off on holiday again. She's been off to on a walking holiday. No election called this time. Much better corporate earnings in the US than, than we thought. So I think coming into the, you know, they'd set the bar so low that the, all the earnings expectations have been revised lower sort of at the back end of last year when everything was looking really shaky and so it was quite an easy beat this year for a lot of companies um, but it, it does look like probably we're not going to get an earnings recession they'd sort of eyed maybe a two percent decline in eps in the u.s maybe now looking at, at some growth there so much better corporate earnings in the u.s the fed has been well it, it completed its dovish pivot i think really you would say but then this week uh, j pals basically said they're not going to cut rates this year or certainly don't look to be doing that yeah. that's all we need so thank you very much <laughs> and that's the end of the show so helen i mean as i mentioned and all this in the face of a lot of headwinds Yes, a lot of headwinds. But I think the point over these last few weeks is that the tail risk, the absolute outlier of something dreadful happening, has receded. Uh, It's receded because of the can kicking. It's happened with Brexit. It's even happening on the trade war front where there does at least seem to be some progress by the discussions that they're having, an accelerated number of discussions between the US and China, putting some dates in the diary for Trump and Xi Jinping to meet. So I would say that uh, although there are headwinds, the the real um, bad outcomes, the really nasty ones, what we like to call the tail risks, have receded. Uh, and that has happened just as, you know, there has been these slightly better earnings in the US. And um, it just sort of makes for a, at the margin, better picture. Okay. Now you talk about this trade deal. I mean, we all talk about it <laughs> endlessly. In essence, what might we be close to, in your view, and what are the hurdles? Or benefits indeed. Well, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, we have the master of spin with uh, the president on one hand who will portray it as a win, whatever. Uh, it, uh, he the said that, there. didn't he? He actually said. <laughs> Did he actually say that? We get a deal, we win. We don't get a deal, we win. So <laughs> oh, well, yeah, there we go then. I mean, you know, can't really argue with that, can you? I think he's feeling quite bulled up because obviously the Mueller report has come out and as yet anyway doesn't seem to have 
uh, you know, lit the touch paper on any kind of impeachment issue, which would have been tricky anyway. But um, certainly, the Democrats don't want to see, don't want Nancy Pelosi. The Democrats mm. doesn't want to go down that line. So for him, it's it's as ever. It is just all about um, bullying onward with where am I winning uh, and and you know kicking away any kind of losses. So I think I think the detail of this um, of this whatever they come up with on the trade side, though. I think they will get something done. It's in both their interests. The Chinese economy doing a bit better now, I think, but did have a bit of a soggy patch a few months ago. Uh, there's been a few uh, corporate earnings. Well, Apple that, says it's doing better. We'll get on to Apple yeah, in detail specifically. Exactly. But there does seem to have been some movement. There does, exactly. And I think that where companies were saying, oh, this is a drag on our earnings, they're now that doesn't seem to be the case any longer. So things have shifted. Where I'll be interested to see... Um, whether the Chinese uh, are willing to bend is on this concept of intellectual property and enforcement of anything they agree on this, which is, you know, checking in to make sure the Chinese haven't stolen. That's it. I mean, how do they? I think there's real doubts about whether you can enforce any deal, even even if whatever deal they get, how how do you enforce it? Exactly. But it might be one where um, Trump starts to feel like he's the winner, of course. Uh, He is the one with wielding the big stick, um, and I suppose, as we've seen, actually, with the Iranian oil waivers, at any minute he feels that he um, uh, isn't, it isn't working, he will just perform some yeah. huge about turn and say, I'm ripping up the deal, or we're not exporting this, or we're not yeah. accepting that, we're slapping a tariff here. So, he, you know, it, it might be one where the enforcement is um, quite a, uh, a blunt instrument. Is this the core conundrum you were talking about? <laughs> yes, the core conundrum, which is that... Uh, uh, that Trump needs to try and help out those Rust Belt voters by mm. seeming to be doing something on, for example, the industrial side of things. Mm. Uh, but well, lucky he helped Harley Davidson. Uh, yes, <laughs> but but then of course, if if the Chinese um, by giving any more power to the Chinese and with the state control of their of their industry, then you you do start to give more power over to the Chinese state. So it's. It is a, it, that's the conundrum I, I think he's got to deal with. Is um, But I think it's going to be a bit carrot and stick, or probably a lot of stick and a bit of carrot. <laughs> of course, Trump also wanted rate cuts and QE um, to start shrinking the national debt. It's mm. bizarre. I mean, the US economy is growing at over 3%, and, and I don't think you need to be cutting rates in this I think it's marvellous how he has the long-term health of the US economy in his sight <laughs> yeah, well, uh, at all times. I, he's just interested in the stock market. Irrespective of the, uh, yeah. the uh, political cycle. Of course. There's a lot of frustration that there's political pressure on the Fed and how independent can it be? And I think we should, I think Powell is aware, you know, of who his patron is, even as, of course, he does try to act independently. Um, You've seen now, of course, Trump trying to stack the Fed with his nominees. It's quite ironic, really, because he could have been doing that for some time. He only seems to have discovered it quite (laughs) recently. And then the ones he's gone for actually struggling quite hard to get through. I don't think he had any idea of why it was important, to be honest. I, no, I think that's right. And I the, the, I, I sense, sort of sense him as someone who stumbles around looking for these levers of power and, you know, he stumbled on an executive order over the travel ban <laughs> mm. month one. What I'm looking out for is when will he stumble on the one marked dollar policy, uh, which the US Treasury actually does have control over, and um, he could, if he really wanted to, use that against the Fed uh, quite actively and say, well, we're going to try and drive down the dollar if you're not going to lower interest mm-hmm, rates. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I honestly wouldn't put anything past him if um, he doesn't get what he wants. 
So um, I think Powell is in quite a tricky position, actually. Mm. Now, we talked a little bit about the UK. Uh, we've had a few sort of economic bits and pieces out. Obviously, no change in UK interest rates. Um, for me, the one interesting standout point was a bit less stockpiling. Firms are beginning to unwind that. Yeah, well, I guess that there it comes back to that idea that the, the tail risk of a hard Brexit's maybe diminished. And also, you can't stockpile forever. You can't, you know, they, they stockpiled because they thought March 29th was going to be the day. Uh, and then now it's been pushed back and pushed back. So you can't just fill, you can't just leave your warehouses full. And if you've got anything that's perishable, then obviously you need to, to consider that too. I mean, I think it was DFS for stockpiling sofas. So you can't, you know, you can't have a warehouse with, loads of stock forever and just yeah. so you need to you need to get rid of it and it just I think it just points to the fact that that businesses are cracking on with things despite mm. despite the, the uncertainty over Brexit. There has been talk of uh, the Prime Minister giving considerable ground to Labour but even if they could do a deal uh, what does the arithmetic look like? Well you still have the same problem in fact which is the further you move towards the Labour Party the bigger the risk you start to lose some of your own party. So although she got uh, down to uh, she she nobbled down a few of those rebels in that final uh, final vote on the withdrawal agreement there's no guarantee that even if she picked up Labour votes, she'd be able to keep all of her own Conservative votes, particularly with the disarray that um, the Conservative Party, unfortunately, is now in. Uh, the polling, they have precipitously dropped ever since the launch of Nigel Farage's UKIP 2.0, which is the <laughs> Brexit party. Um, and so, of course, we've got these European and parliamentary elections coming up, much as Theresa May might like to pretend... Perhaps we can get a deal done before the date happens. Um, so I, I just think that, you know, Theresa May is in... It's the same problem she had before, but much worse. Because she's lost support of the public that she did have. And um, nobody... It's in nobody's interest to rescue her. Mm. That's the problem. It's in no one's interest to rescue her, even for Conservatives. Because, of course, they're all now jockeying for who's going to be next as the leader. So business has washed its hands. We're just moving on. I think, yeah. And I think that, as as Neil was saying, you have to get on with doing things. Six months is long time. The way it's gone so far, it could be more than six months. There could be another delay. So you cannot just either sit there stockpiling or waiting. or You have to put uh, plans into action. And I think yeah, that uh, yeah, business has realised... We can't wait around for this mm. this noise to continue. Well, shall we cross the channel and go to Spain, where we have a new uh, Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez. He's won the most votes, but, uh, Neil, not enough for an outright majority. No, no, no outright majority. Um, I think there was some, I mean, there was some market reaction. It wasn't that heavy, though. It's kind of the vote was as expected. Mm. Um, I think the the Spanish market was off a touch on the Monday afterwards, but nothing nothing beyond much more than, than the, the other European indices were that day. Um, I guess with Spain, there's just uh, a bit of, a bit of political risk around the, the rise of populists. Um, I think they polled reasonably well. Um, but it, that's a, a pan-European theme that the populists hit a certain level and can't seem to get much further than that. You know, there's not any real momentum beyond that that kind of core group. And it's I don't I don't think you know we're going to see see anything major coming out of Spain except the fact is that the centre right's kind of broken up and and therefore you don't get a, a an overtly pro-business mm. government probably in Spain yeah. for some time. Perhaps it could become like Italy. 
Yes, well, I think what will be interesting to watch for Sanchez is he did make quite a few promises on the electoral trail and like a classic left-wing socialist government, they'd be looking to spend money. And that feeds into a bigger narrative across the European... Well, he said again, you're going to raise taxes. Well, exactly. It's uh, it's not the best mix in a country mm. where unemployment continues to rise mm. and they have serious problems, as you say, similar to Italy. I think the thing we want to watch out for, really, with a lot of the European nations is... Are those budget deficits creeping back up? Is there any action that will be taken by the European authorities? Um, and in these European parliamentary elections, the, the rise of the uh, populist groupings, the question is, can they work together? So Salvini, who runs the League, uh, the anti-establishment grouping in Italy, has recently got together with some of his chums, such as Marine Le Pen and France and uh, other anti-establishment. Yes, exactly. And and so they are. Um, they actually had a press conference recently saying, uh, you know, I think they called their slogan was something like "Towards a common sense Europe!" Exclamation mark. And they want to be an actual grouping in the European Parliament. The thing is, for all the noise about these populist parties, they haven't actually had that much representation. They haven't worked mm. very mm. well together. They've been quite national in their form. If they start to come together at a European level let's say they became the third or fourth biggest grouping in the European Parliament, they might start to have a bit of an impact on how um, Europe is um, mm. Europe is governed. I've often wondered, Neil, the um, Dayglow Yellow Jacket Brigade in France, are they left or right wing? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. I don't know. I think they're... I, I think they're probably <laughs> anarchists, really. I'm well, not, exactly. Sure. I mean, that, that's the. That, I mean, that's one of the things you know. You start to look at the rise of some mm. of these parties, like Vox in mm. Spain, which certainly is far right. But then, um, some of what you see in Italy from the Five Star Movement is certainly much more economically left. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, there's there's a sense quite well, they often they kind of meet round the back. Exactly, it's a but circle. A, it's a circle, not fasc- a line. The original fascists were economically yes. quite quite left. You know, yes. state control being. Yeah, well, the, so. the, the Nazi Party, sorry to mention them, but the full name was the Nationalist Socialist Party. Uh, so, well, on to uh, Venezuela. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, talk, well, seeing you mentioned Venezuela, it's mm. eased off a bit. Oil prices have come down. Yeah, well, they, inter- they came down because of Trump again. You know, he just drives the agenda. He drives the news agenda, the policy agenda. He takes it in different directions and people struggle to keep up. So, But they're in the... Relating to oil, he, he said that he'd been on the phone to Saudi Arabia and they were on board to pump more oil to offset the, the loss of the Iranian um, oil, uh, crude exports from the market. So that's had some impact, but we've seen oil come back up. I think there's underlying supply risks with Iran still. Venezuela, there's been a lot of, there was a big drop off in March, um, around three quarters of a million barrels per day um, from from Venezuela, probably more in, 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 in April. Um, Saudi Arabia stands ready to pump. It can it can increase production by about half a half a million barrels per day, w- without even compromising its commitments to the supply uh, agreement. Um, but Saudi Arabia has said that it doesn't want to pump more until it sees real evidence hmm. um, that there is a problem with supply. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty in in the oil market right now. So there's been a big ramp up bit of a pause for breath I guess you know you've got supply uncertainty and still a bit of demand uncertainty um, we could see I think Chinese demand at the start of the year the tail end of last year was actually quite positive but but they might have been front front loading that demand so they might we might see Chinese demand actually start to tail off so lots of um, complicating uh, mixed signals in the oil market at the moment. 
Okay, lots of companies to talk about stateside. Shall we start with uh, the two A's, Apple and Alphabet? Uh, Apple service growth is uh, what it's all about now. iPhone sales were pretty well off a a cliff, Helen, 17% slide. Yeah, and I don't think that should be too much of a surprise because, you know, it has been on the wane for some time now and uh, other smartphone makers have clearly established a bit more dominance, particularly in the uh, emerging nations. Uh, But uh, it was... Quite a surprise to me, those earnings from Apple. Um, as you say, you know, the core iPhone is, is not doing so well, but the service element has rescued them. Mm. Mm. But you see, what I wonder, Neil, is does Apple really believe, I mean, obviously we know what they say about these things, do they really believe that the sales decline for the iPhone is temporary? Because none of these services, the Apple Music, the movies, the television can replace that kind of ecosystem of people who bought the phones and then bought uh, the stuff that went with them. I think I think you know you have to consider that there's a product cycle and and they you know they will come up with fresh ideas for the iPhone but you know they've made a very obvious and overt pivot to direct the business to be more service based. Um, they've stopped reporting iPhone unit sales. They've just launched a, a range of new services that will come out in the autumn. So I think yeah, the the ecosystem thing is is key. You know, you've got one point four billion people in the ecosystem. Isn't I think, that amazing? Devices. I saw that. Yeah, one point four billion devices they service. But and they're, they're high spending, much higher spending yeah. than Android users. So yeah. that that's key. And I think you know you and hard to dislodge. Exactly. Isn't it? Loyal, when you've got that. People are mm. loyal to, to Apple. Tim Cook did struggle though when he was asked in India about the way the phones were developing it's kind of very much a US and European focused company don't you think I think so I think they have struggled with that uh, the India the China side of things which obviously have been huge growth markets Mm -hmm. and to be quite frank I'm sure we all expected that Apple would struggle after uh, unfortunately Steve Jobs died and it's been a hard I think a hard graft for Tim Cook and uh, they have pivoted I'm unconvinced it will be the the Mm. right um, the right future Mm. I sort of feel they've reached saturation point we talk about Mm. the 1.4 billion it's significant they are people are spending money but but where are they going to get extra growth from yeah yeah I I guess they don't trade at the same kind of multiple as a lot of you know they're not they're not trading like a growth company anyway so I think I think that what the services you know look at services margins which are like at 63 percent versus group margins at 37 38 percent over the last how many years have been really stable you can see the margining improvement from as you the contribution from devices switches to more to services you see that margin improvement the only thing is that the the services revenue growth is actually slowing slightly so Mm. it was up at like 30 percent last year above 30 percent in a number of quarters last year it's now at 16 percent so again maybe there's a bit of plateauing happening Mm. there where you just can't you can't continue at that at that no, exactly. They, How are they going to keep yeah. the momentum for that going? But yet yeah, still a solid and mature business, I mm. suppose. So this morning I, I said, hey, Google, what happened to your revenue growth? <laughs> well, who knows? Alphabet. They didn't really, they didn't explain. <laughs> like, this was the thing. They she didn't, didn't answer. <laughs> yeah. no. Well, she did answer, but uh, it wasn't helpful. No, I don't think Alphabet really answered. They didn't No, I think that was the impression people were left mm. with from... Well, yeah. the well they blame the US with. dollar, the fine yeah, from ethics. the European regulators... But that's, and uh, that's, online advertising was down. That's a bit more worrying. Mm. I think I think that's the key. I think that it's the competition in in the digital ad space from Amazon and Facebook that's really starting. Because eyes now, you know, you don't necessarily Google if you want to buy some I don't know 
you want to buy some chocolate or whatever or some toothbrush toothbrush you don't necessarily google it you go to amazon and, and go yeah. straight in there so um and air they are, conditioning units yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. are we I all mean, talking about things we want there i mean i was <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you're right that's a very interesting point and and key to the supremacy of amazon and, and mm. that how that has continued actually even as it's spread into different types Mm. of revenues it is just becoming more and more Mm. dominant well let's talk about flying things now Lufthansa showed a as you said I think uh, this week a red flag for airlines well I mean yeah maybe maybe it was a small exaggeration I I thought that's racing when they have a red flag (laughs) it's an orange sock isn't it it (laughs) it's a man with bats isn't it at the front of the plane yeah the table tennis yeah (laughs) as I see them (laughs) they just raised that sort of uh, sort of outlook warnings and, and performance warnings that that I think we, we've seen in European short-haul sector for some time. It's overcapacity, pricing pressure. You know, they just compete away margins as soon as they get a chance. That that just affects their, you know, their profitability. Higher fuel costs as well have been a big problem there. So all, all things that are not Lufthansa-specific, they're, they're sector-specific mm. um, or they're sector-wide rather. And so I think that's it's a bit of a worry for the airlines. There's still, still too much capacity uh, and a lot of demand uncertainty. I mean, we saw, mm. for example, is it Thomas Cook's report on holidaymakers? There, no one's booking for summer holidays. Away, yeah. Yeah. Moving away yeah. from European and destinations. Mov- moving yeah, away to Europe. Yeah. 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 Or Eurozone. Eurozone. Yeah. But that's yeah. actually good for Thomas Cook if people go outside of Spain and the like, because yeah. they, they do much better people are in Turkey, Turkey. and Egypt than, yeah. than if they're in Spain, because there's much lower margins in Spain, much mm. more competitive again. Airbus had a pretty decent set of figures. Of course, looked even better mm-hmm. in contrast with what's been going on at Boeing. It is, isn't it? I mean, it was always going to be a, a, a nice win for them after the drama that Boeing has suffered. Um, but even in the detail, um, looked pretty good for Airbus, I think. Their deliveries were looking very solid. Mm-hmm. What else you see? Yeah, they're really ramping up capacity. There was, though, a hit. There's that, the ban, the German government's ban on Saudi defence export licences, I think, knocked them by 190 million euros. Quite a knock. Quite a knock. But a one-off. Yeah, I think it's a one-off. I mean, mean, Boeing has defence risks as well, doesn't it? So that's not unique. No, of course, no. Boeing's been borrowing uh, quite a lot of money. It's entered a new $1.5 billion line of credit with three US banks. So I suppose it all depends on them getting their reputation back and uh, continuing to sell globally. Yeah, I mean, the the 737 MAX 8 problem is obviously not... But I don't think that... I don't think that it's fundamentally going to shift people away from from Boeing. I don't think that it's not that easy for airlines to shift, (laughs) to just go, well, we'll get rid of all our Boeing aircraft and we'll suddenly get Airbus because the pilots are trained on specific aircraft and so on. And I just think Boeing and Airbus are both going to do well because air travel is is going to boom over there. I'd like if you trained on the A380 because there won't be there'll only be like <laughs> yeah, five, five planes left. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the S&P have maintained their A rating on Boeing's debt. Mm. I've noticed that. Uh, okay, a few UK companies to talk about. Uh, most recently, as we talk now, Lloyd's still got a bit of a PPI problem. Yeah, uh, another £100 million in the first quarter of the year set aside for PPI, taking it to nearly, it's nearly £20 billion, sorry, since the the scandal broke. goodness. So Lloyd's has been at the centre of the scandal. It's been the worst affected bank. Um, Yeah, so revenue, bit of a miss. um, But things like net interest margin were strong. That's about 2.9%, which is um, pretty good matching Barclays, much better than RBS. Um, their return on 
tangible equity is unlike other UK banks actually ahead of the cost of equity so there uh, it was a 12 and a half percent so there they've outperformed Barclays and RBS uh, this year um, the question I think with Lloyd is, is the fact that they're just so heavily exposed to the UK economy they can't there's no real signs that they're going to drive top line growth any other way they if the economy grows Lloyds will do fine if it shrinks mm. Lloyds will suffer I think that's the the real problem mm. for Lloyds now, Helen I know you've had a lot of involvement with investment banking down the years there's a thing going on at Barclays we don't know the out- outcome as we speak but sort of big question marks about whether the UK can maintain a presence in investment banking this debate going on at Barclays at the moment well I think that there is a huge a huge challenge going on actually with investment banking models not even just in the UK but more broadly I mean you only have to look obviously at uh, the the Deutsche Bank in Germany and actually even with some of the titans in the US who've done an awful lot better they still struggle Um, Q4 earnings in the American banks were less lower than expected for trading uh, revenues although they've they've got better in Q1 Um, but I think the entire industry is struggling with the uh, low interest rates and flat yield curves but that has been a problem for many years they've actually got still fairly high fixed costs they're still getting Mm. rid of people trying to restructure Um, and the mergers and acquisitions that you might expect could feed those investment banking revenues don't really seem to be turbocharged even with uh, stock markets up at highs Mm. which you sort of would have expected I think because there are still a lot of concerns and uncertainties out there Um, so I think banks have got a I think I think the banking sector, obviously boosted by QE and the rise in asset prices over the last decade that's obviously coming to an end um, and I think that their business models, the sort of the mega bank, let's do everything to everyone, doesn't work anymore. People have been trying to shed desperately the profitable bits um, and it's still not quite clear to me what would constitute a successful bank because I think any angle doesn't quite seem to be working right now. I mean, the trading side has a heavy regulatory burden. As I say, the mergers and acquisitions is not really catching light too much, um, originating new debt. There has been better, but uh, but there's a big competition for the, for the that's competing down their fees that they're getting fees, from it. They? Most I mean, the fees, the, you don't get the get, fat yeah. fees. And exactly. most of the fintech challenger banks are still loss-making. Well, Metro exactly. Bank. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes <laughs> let's not mention it. They still get free dog biscuits. Yeah. So it's, I, I, I personally think it's a sector which um, will just continue to underperform. Okay. Uh, let's talk about Sainsbury's. Everybody was sort of despairing at Sainsbury's, notably uh, yourself over the weeks, uh, Neil. <laughs> but uh, have they skipped almost six percent higher as the pre-tax profits were slightly better? And uh, Mike Coop's moved on. Well, he's not moved on, is well, he? Well, no, no, not literally. Not literally. <laughs> he's, he's moved he on. You know, he should. Well, well, don't worry about that but, little merger thing. We yeah. just yeah, didn't work made out. a bit of a misjudgment <laughs> there, but you know, <laughs> small amount of money. Is that a realistic position? I mean, do you think Sainsbury's can kick itself back into life? I mean, Argos isn't doing too bad. Yeah, I mean, well, Argos is okay. I mean, that was a good a good move. Um, and they've got the cost synergies um, early, nine months early, that they expected. I think profits were better than we expected they would be. That's why the share price rose a little bit, 4 5%. But their core grocery like-for-likes are, are heading that are negative, or were negative in the second half for sure. I just think that at the time that 
Tesco Morrison's and everyone and discounters are marching ahead they're they're falling back and you know the Kantar data for and uh, 12 weeks to the middle of April showed that Sainsbury's was the only um uh, supermarket to to actually lose um to, to see a decline in, in sales mm-hmm. so it's losing market share and its sales are declining Pretty you, tough. Yeah. It's pretty tough for yeah. Mike Coop to say anything going well. He's, I, they, they need a turnaround like yes. like Dave Lewis or Dave Potts have done at, at Tesco and Morrison. Though William Morrison, for all of their recent success, they have, I think, seen market share decline to 10.3% from 10.5%. So, Again, know, discounters, but I think Morris, Morrison's is, is still uh, like for like sales have been um, steadily marching forward. Um, a lot of that comes from the wholesale division now, though. But that's not a bad thing in itself. That they are still doing pretty well. In the next few days, watch out for Imperial Brands. So they've got interims on Wednesday, uh, Thursday, BT's finals, and uh, mid-cap company Barrett Developments uh, really have pretty consistent profit growth uh, in what's been a rather turbulent market. Yeah, well, I mean, house builders have kind of been doing overall pretty well as as there has been low interest rates, um, helped to buy, um, has supported uh, Barrett and, and some of the others. I think the thing that we'll be looking at is the, there was a recent warning from Taylor Wimpy, um, which is probably the other main big FTSE 100 developer uh, on costs. And it was it had pinned it on um, some FX headwind, some underlying inflation, but also a supply chain thing that was a supply chain problem um, that wasn't specific to them as such. Um, I also wondered, they didn't mention it, but labor costs might be a factor because in terms of the shortage of labor and then we know it's a big structural problem for the housing sector for the house builders is finding labor so higher costs are are fine if you've got a rising housing market but we don't have that we've got prices sort of flat uh, they were flat from Q4 to Q1 uh, for Taylor Wimpy um so they're they're producing a few more houses than they were but they're not selling for more and the costs are rising so that obviously read across on that lower margins lower profitability and and the risk mm. is that that that, that will be the a similar situation for for barrett development it sounds to me like this is one sector helen that can't quite put brexit behind it because all of those things have got a sort of little brexit flag haven't they they do labor availability mm. the currency supply chain yeah i don't see that being resolved even by the brexit delay really it's just um quite an embedded issue those ones that we've picked up mm. on there and it can't be reversed in a matter of months no. and in fact by the sounds of it i see the nhbc was saying new homes registered three percent more on uh, this quarter on than last year so in fact the supply might uh, also weigh on on house prices which are just mm. not going up so mm. that's not going to help either well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's Helen Thomas. Uh, her consultancy can be found at blondemoney.co.uk. Neil Wilson's Chief Market Commentator at markets.com. If this is the first time you've heard us, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple iTunes or our bases on SoundCloud. Uh, until next time, it's goodbye. <laughs>